continue our study, our walk through our hopefully being, being directed and given purpose and everything. And, and here's like, you know, pastor fantasy thoughts, fantasy life is when we talk about these things together and we go over these same messages, these same themes, that you're thinking about it. You're, you're thinking during the week, later on today, you're thinking about how can we be his church and be his church this way? And how, you know, what do I need to do? What is my next step? And so as we come to the text today, you know, come expecting, come thinking, come focused on God's word. Acts chapter 20, verses one through 16 says, after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said, farewell, and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Silpater, the Berean, uh, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met with us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. When sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day we touched at Samos, and the day after that we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus, so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So this is wrapping up the, the third missionary journey of Paul's. And, and, you know, we were talking about this on, on Wednesday night, and, and it kind of reads like a travel log, like a journal, like we went here, and we went here, and we went here, and we went here, and we don't get a lot of details as to what happened at all these places. And instead, we're just, you know, Luke has kind of established what Paul does. When Paul goes to a new city, this is what he does. When Paul goes back to a city that he's from, this is what he does. And, and we're, it seems like we're just getting facts with this just one story stuck in the middle. 
But those of you who kind of know your Bible and you know Paul, you know that something else is going on here. You know that the last, you know, he's been at Ephesus for three years or so, and prior to that, he had spent almost a year and a half to two years at Corinth. And sometime during his stay in Ephesus, and now into this time, there's all of these problems going on at Corinth. We have two of four letters we know of that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth to address these problems. These were people that had come to faith in Jesus Christ, largely through the ministry of Paul, just like the Ephesians, but instead of having this grand success that the Ephesians had, the Corinthians quickly fell to just infighting. And it's weird, if you read 1 Corinthians, their, their fighting is so weird. You know, they're not arguing about important things like the color of the carpet, or whether we should have pews or folding chairs, or things like that. Those are really important arguments to have. They were having arguments about, you know, like, who baptized who? Like, oh, guess who baptized me? That makes me better than you, because you were baptized by a lesser person. Or they might have been dividing over, you know, their kind of like where they were in society. And we can kind of forgive them, because you've got to remember, these are brand new Christians. They've only been Christians for a year or so, two years, three years. And, and they're kind of like at that very beginning of the church, so they're struggling. But they're still dividing over that. The people who were kind of wealthier and, and didn't have to like work, you know, they were coming really early and sharing a meal together. And then they would eat all the good food they brought because when the servants and the kind of working class people came, they're like, you know, we don't really want to eat their food. They're dividing over just ridiculous things. They were even dividing over the Lord's Supper, which was associated with these, these meals, these gatherings that they had. So many things that were supposed to be about the unity of the church and the equality that we have in Christ, they were using these things to divide. And then the one thing where they think like, okay, we understand the message of salvation is grace and mercy. So what they decided was, and Paul points it out in the first letter, they decided, okay, we, we know about this guy. He's a part of our church, and he's having an affair with, like, his mother-in-law, close relative. We're so full of grace and mercy, we're going to just let it go. The one time they start thinking about grace, they get it totally wrong. They don't help this guy. They don't, you know, Paul says, even the pagans don't do this. Even that life you came out of, they don't think this is good, and you think this is a demonstration of your grace. And so Paul says, no, you need to, you need to confront that person. And if necessary, they need to be put out of the church. So he's dealing with this church at Corinth that probably had just as much wealth, in some respect had just as many numbers. 
all of this is going on while he's simultaneously dealing with the church at Ephesus where everything seems to be going well and he knows he's being called to leave them all. He's not only being called to leave Corinth, which is having problems, he's also called to leave Ephesus where everything seems to be going well. And in fact, he's going to be called to go somewhere where it could be really dangerous and he knows it. This is Paul, wrapping up this, this missionary journey, and the way the story is told, it's, again, we don't get a lot of the details other than this one story in the middle. It's almost like Luke doesn't need to tell us because we know what Paul's doing in these places. Because Paul is very consistent. He's going to go He's either going to be encouraging and teaching the church or he's going to be reaching out to those who are lost. It's very consistent. When he faces persecution or resistance, he's either going to be staying and facing it or he's going to be moving on. Something almost routine about this. We also get this list of other people who are with him. And it's only a partial list in verse 4. And it's kind of cool because these, these people come from all these different parts of the empire. They're not all just from one place. They're not all just Jewish. They come from all over. And we see this. And, and, and even we, we don't get a lot of what, what they're saying. You should just know when it says waiting, these guys are not waiting like we might wait. I think when we wait, what we usually are doing is probably you've got your phone in your hand and you might be like playing the latest cool video, uh, you know, phone game, or maybe you're still stuck on the old ones doing, you know, Pong or, you know, Pac-Man or something like that. Or we're browsing the internet, doing something to keep our minds occupied, but we're really not doing much. You can guess that these guys, some names we recognize, some we don't, that they're not just waiting. Wherever they are, they're doing what, what Paul would do. They're serving, they're ministering. And I think the tendency is to, is to treat Paul like he's some kind of like superstar. And that Paul only did superstar things. That he only showed up when the need was the greatest. And then he flew in and he saved the day. We don't realize that this problem with Corinth was going on for months if not years. It took a long time to work through. The work that's at Ephesus, it's not just him. He's got this team with him, but he also has the people from Ephesus. And I think what's happened, you know, we see this in, in our world today, and I don't, think it's, I don't think it's new. I just think we have cooler movies with cool, you know, you know, CG and all this other stuff, special effects, that we can show it better. But, you know, cultures have always been fascinated by the superhero 
the superhero who, who comes along to save the day. And, you know, whether you want to go back to some of you where you're like, I don't like my superhero in tights. Well, you liked your superhero in a cowboy hat or something like that. But our world looks for superheroes. We're constantly looking for the, the next, the latest, the greatest. A lot of churches, people looking for churches, they're looking for like that superhero pastor, that pastor who, who, just, who just does everything right, says everything right, so charismatic. And we're drawn to that. We look to that. People following Jesus did the same thing because Jesus really was a superhero. And people were drawn to him not because of his message, which is why they needed to be drawn to him, they were drawn to him because he looked the part of the super savior. And what we find in scripture, what we find in scripture is the perfect, all-powerful, all-knowing, perfectly good God who created the universe chooses not to work through superheroes he chooses to work through people like you and me. He chooses to work through those who are ordinary. And let me just take it a step further. He chooses to work through people who are ordinary doing ordinary things. We get so caught up in the superhero and the supernatural. We want to see the superhero doing the amazing, miraculous thing. And you know what? If it happens, that's great. If it happens, it's, that's, that's awesome. But if you live your life looking for the superhero, and you live your life looking for that supernatural thing that's going to be that sign that tells you, okay, this is what I need to do, you're going to miss God at work every single second, every single moment, every single day through the people around you. You'll miss it. And you might even get to a point in your life where you're full of despair or when you've just messed up so much you think there's no way out and then you're like, where are you, God? Where are you, God? And God's like, I've been around you the whole time. But you keep looking for a superhero. You keep looking for a miraculous sign. And I'm pouring out the sign again and again in your life. And if you're in church and we're in a good church and we're in a healthy church, we see the miracle. We should see the miracle every time we're together. That we, that we love each other. We love people here that we have no business loving. If it wasn't for Christ in our lives, we wouldn't even know each other. And we love each other. And we don't love each other for what you can do for me or I can do for you. In some sense, we don't even understand it. It doesn't make sense. I mean, where could you be this morning? Watching NFL football? You know, coming back from Dawn Patrol at the beach, surfing, catching up on some chores at the house, going to 
brunch, whatever brunch is. I, I think it's a meal. Where, where else could you be? Who else would you connect with? Would you get together with people that otherwise you would have no connection to? And not just sit next to each other, but genuinely love each other? You see, that's the problem. If I had been able to pull this off and I could do some kind of pyrotechnic thing and, and showed you some, everybody would oh, but I talk about love and some of us are just like, all right, come on, pastor, you know, come on, pastor, getting hungry here. We miss the miracle that God took your dead heart gripped in sin full of selfishness, full of pride. Maybe you masked it over because you had been so indoctrinated by your culture to behave a certain way so you were considered a good person. But you know deep in your heart you were only doing that because it was feeding something inside of yourself. And God took that heart and when you had faith in Jesus Christ, he not just cleaned it up, he made it new. He gave you the ability to love like only he can love. To not just love people who can help you. Not just love people who you had to because, you know, you were born into their family. Not just love people who were like you and did the same things as you. And that you would not only love those who are unfamiliar, you would love those who would even want to kill you. Where does that come from? I know it's not natural to me. If it's natural to you, I would love to hear. We miss God at work. And one of the big things that we see here in this text is that God is still at work, even though this reads like a travel log. And so when we come to this text and we, we see that, you know, this first big point is just simply this. God works through the consistent faithfulness of his people. The consistent faithfulness of his people. It's not like gearing up for that one special Sunday or that one special moment. It's not saying, hey God, if anybody ever says your faith or your life, man, I'm willing to give my life. It's like, no. It's not living, it's not living for that moment. It's saying, no, I'm going to give my life every single moment of every single day. Not preparing for some grand gesture Paul doesn't just plant the church and move on. Notice, even in Ephesus, it says, after the uproar ceased, after the big problems that were coming because the silversmiths had rioted and got all these people upset, that the uproar ceases. Paul doesn't even play a major role. Paul kind of seems like in that story kind of wants to kind of do the superhero thing or maybe the super martyr thing and he's like you know let me go into that crowd of 10,000 angry people and let me speak to them 
And I don't know Paul's motivation. I just know he wasn't allowed. His friends stopped him. But then what do we see? After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And he encouraged them. What? It's a much better movie if Paul walks into the crowd and says, silence, and everybody's quiet. It's a much better movie if, if somehow Paul gets, gets attacked and somehow he dies for his faith. It's a much better story. What kind of story is this? He's not even allowed to go do it. The uproar ceases, and then he just encourages the disciples. Boring. Not boring. God at work through the consistent faithfulness of Paul. Not Paul just doing these grand things, and we know Paul did grand things. I mean, he was virtually dead, and then he just gets up after having huge rocks thrown at him. He heals people. We've seen him do these incredible things, but that's not the point. The point is, is that this is happening over decades, and he's not doing a miracle every moment in the decades. Those are the exceptions. The rule is the consistent faithfulness in the big and in the small. And I think when we think about this in our own lives, and we think about this in our own church, one of the things that we need to keep in mind is that if we're a follower of Christ and we're doing what God has called us to do, that everything we do, no matter how big or how small, is connected to that purpose. Most of what I've done in my life is working for, you know, working for Christian organizations, and sometimes they're not churches, um, sometimes it's been schools and other things, and when I've been in charge of the offices and we have meetings, and I will mention this and I will pray this, it's that we understand that if your task today is just to photocopy, you know, you know 200 pages, 10 times, make sure they're collated and stapled and have a binder on them. That if you're doing that because God has called you to this place to do work in service of him, that's your kingdom purpose for that moment. Do it knowing that. Don't do it with the drudgery of, oh. you know, and this is, this is from a guy who spent five years in college doing what my friends and I called mindless student help work. And this was before Xerox, you know, machines could collate and staple and all this other stuff. We'd do it by the hours, or you don't even have to think about it. You could just do it. But all we do, all we do is connected to the church, the ministry, the kingdom. But I also want you to understand this, because some people like that. Some people go like, yeah, 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 good. I will staple for the Lord, no problem. I will sweep up for the Lord, no problem. But as we've been talking about, 
and I think John did a really good job a couple weeks ago bringing this out. There are certain things that all of us are called to do. All of us. And the one that we've been talking about because it's coming out of this text, all of us are called to be disciples so that we can disciple others. In other words, all of us, even if you're a staple, staple, staple person, that's your, that's your spiritual gift, spiritual gift of stapling, you also have the task of being in the process of either being discipled or now discipling others. We all have that task. It's a task given to the church as a whole, and it's a task given to each of us. And if you say, well, I don't know anything, how can I disciple? Well, that means you need to be on the part that's being discipled. And we offer so many ways to do that, and, and we would love nothing more than to, if need be, meet with you individually and teach you that way. Some of you know a ton. Your lives are so representative of Christ. But for whatever reason, you don't feel like, I should, I should start discipling others. And part of it is because the church just hasn't preached this even though it's loudly proclaimed in Scripture. If we can do nothing else in our lives, if we get to the point where, where we cannot, you know, be as active, we can't get out as much as we could, we can always be involved in dis discipleship and discipling others. Oh, there's other tasks. I'm just going to mention that one because I think it's one we've been talking about and I think it's, it's, it's core, essential to what it means to be his church. You see, discipleship is, is not as flashy as, hey, you know, I shared the gospel with 12 people this week and three of them professed Christ. That's awesome. We would all celebrate that. We would say, Great job, keep it up. I hope all of us keep doing that. But just like we don't get so excited about the miracle of love, we don't get too excited about the miracle of discipleship. If someone comes in and says, yeah, I've been discipling this couple guys for you know a couple years, we're like, yeah, okay, cool, work happy, but not nearly as happy as, oh, you brought somebody to Christ. And understand, I'm not comparing the two. I'm not saying you do one or the other. We need to do both. I'm just saying we have taken this kind of, like, let discipleship be like in the back seat. And what's really important is just share the gospel, share the gospel, share the gospel, which is very important. But if you look at the Great Commission, it's not just about sharing the gospel. It is about making disciples. At the heart of what Jesus told his followers is make disciples. Don't just share the gospel, baptize them, move on. Make disciples. You know, the action point is, you know, that, that we can look at is just is first of all to ask, like, ask God, say, God, how, help me see how 
how my faithfulness is connected to what you're doing. I don't, I don't see it. Because if you don't see it, it could be that you have never really sought out God and said, God, what actually is your purpose for me? Do I actually live my Christian life with purpose? And is that purpose your kingdom purpose? If it is, great. If it's not, show me that I've just been kind of showing up. I do all the things that a Christian's supposed to do, but I do it without purpose or without direction. I would also ask that he, you would, you know, the other action point is, is to say, you know, where am I in this discipleship, discipling thing? Am I being discipled? Do I need to be discipled more? Or am I discipling others? Or do I need to get involved in that? John and I would love to talk to you about that. We would love to let you know ways that you can either be preparing for that or doing it. I've said this before, but if 200 new, brand new believers showed up at our church next week, 200 brand new believers who need to be discipled, are they going to starve to death here? Or do, would we as a church be able to say, who, who can I help? Who can I walk with? Who can I teach? The second point we see here is this kind of interesting story from verse 7 to 12. And again, we get distracted by the miracle. But the way Luke tells us the story, the miracle is really not the story. The miracle is, the main story is not that this dude fell asleep because Paul was talking too long and then he gets healed. But that's what we get drawn to because it's kind of cool. It's kind of interesting. But the story And Luke makes sure because he starts it and he ends it this way. He starts with, we were gathered together to break bread. Paul talked with them. So Paul is teaching them. And he says he prolonged his speech until midnight. So if breaking bread refers to Lord's Supper and the evening meal, that means by midnight, Paul's been going a good This is spring, so he's probably been going a good five hours. And then, look in verse 11 after Paul says, hey, his life is still in him. In verse 11 it says, when Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak. You know what the focus is on? They were listening to Paul for over 12 hours. There are people, Christians, who love God, love his word, who get upset if a sermon goes more than 20 minutes. What is wrong with us if we're not hungering after God's word? You might go like, but, you know, Paul was probably more interesting than you. Maybe, Paul might have been. But we know one of the things that some of the, some of the false apostles 
were saying about Paul and was kind of ringing true with the church at Corinth is that he's not a very good speaker. Not a very good speaker at all. In fact, he's not even much to look at. He doesn't look impressive. You know, I would look more impressive if I had a big beard like John. But, but still, I mean, it's like Paul, who we look at as this, you know, if he was in the movies, you know, maybe I'm dating myself, it would be Paul Newman. I don't know about norm, I don't know about modern Pauls. Um, but, but, you know, he would be like really handsome guy. That's not the way he's talked about. Twelve hours. And you know what's cool about Eutychus? Is you could make fun of Eutychus for falling asleep. But here's something that I don't, I really don't think that you should make fun of. Eutychus so wanted to be there. He so wanted to hear God's word that probably after a whole day of work, he was there and with every fiber of his being, he was trying to stay up. He was trying to pay attention. He wasn't doing what some of us would do, like, man, you know, I I, I had a hard day, had a hard night. No, Eutychus, he's there. That's the amazing thing. He's there. And it's not about how interesting Paul's presentation is. It's the fact that the saints are gathered and Paul is teaching them the word. So awesome. So awesome. Don't miss that. Don't miss that how important it was to Eutychus, to all the others here in Troas, to Paul, and to Luke. How important it was to gather together as the church and study God's word. And that's a mark of his church. His church is devoted to studying the word of God together. Not just studying the word of God. There's a lot of Christians that study on their own. Great. But if we're going to be his church, we want to study his word together. It helps us when we're gathered together. Especially like in our Bible studies where we, have, we can have more interaction. We, have, we get more value out of hearing from others besides just one person talking. And that's the action point. Study, listen to, discuss God's word. If God's word and the things of God's word are not part of your conversation, why not? You know, Stan and Violet, ever since I've come here, they think I've been picking on them. Because uh, they say, like, you know, from like the first month I came here, they're like, you know, when we get in our car after the sermon, we're like, why is the pastor picking on us? He's always talking about our problems. And, but they said, what they do, what that tells me and what they told me they were doing is they were talking about the sermon on the ride home. The sermon wasn't dying here when pastor says, okay, final point, conclusion, pray. 
It was living on in their minds, in their relationships, in their homes. How do we do that? I, don't, I, I can't tell you here's a formula for doing it. I can just say that it, it needs to be part of our conversation when Christians are together. Are we talking about God and the things of God and his word? And it's okay to talk about sports and you know, everything else that goes on. Those are fine things to talk about. But if God's people are gathered and we never talk about his word or the things of God or serving him or anything like that and all we talk about are the things of the world, what does it say about where our focus is? His church is devoted to studying the word together. I think this other point, and it's not a huge point, but I think it's an important point. It's that God cares for this guy, Eutychus, so much so that Eutychus does everything he can to stay awake. Uh, I think his only mistake is if you're sleepy, don't sit on an open window. It's probably not a good idea, you know. Uh, maybe tie yourself off or something. But he falls out. And the text seems to indicate that he actually died. But Paul bends over him just like um, we have scenes from the Old Testament where this miracle happens. But notice the focus isn't on the miracle. For goodness sake, if one of you fell dead and then I went over to you and, and prayed for you and then you got better, I'd pretty much be like, hey, whatever my sermon was today, I'm pretty much done with it. Right? Let's just make sure this person's okay. It's kind of cool. No, Paul's like, hey, he's okay. Everybody's like, yeah, he's okay. All right, let's go back to eating and teaching. Let's get back to it. And presumably, Eutychus went up there too. Maybe he was going to be more awake now, adrenaline rush. But God has these kingdom purposes. And we talk about that so much here. We talk about God's big, global, universal purposes for the world, for creation, for all things. We talk about that because there's not enough focus on that, especially in kind of the modern church. But let me also tell you that this shows us that while the God of the universe, who has all of this that he is sovereign over, he also cares about each person. He doesn't necessarily care the way we think he should care. You know, we sang about the good, good father who's perfect in all of his ways, perfect in what he does for me. It doesn't mean he, he does everything I want him to do and he loves me exactly the way I think he should love me. Any parent who thinks it's love to love their kids by giving them everything they want, do not understand love. Or they have perfect children who only ask for the perfect things. But he cares about each of us. And I think that's, the, that's kind of one of those tensions we have to live within. We need to learn about how the kingdom of God is not about you. It's not about me. And yet it includes you. And it includes me. And the last point, and it's, this is going to come out more in the next, next sermon and in the coming weeks, but 
you get it at this part where this kind of weird thing in verse 16. It says, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus. So Paul has gone, he's gone back to Europe, and now he's headed for Jerusalem. And he says he wanted to sail past Ephesus. In fact, the very next verse says, he's gonna send for the elders of the church at Ephesus to meet him, you know, far away from Ephesus. So he can, he can talk with them. And it's kind of vague where it says, so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. And there's different speculation on, on what, you know, why. And, and this is, again, of the various possibilities I've seen, this is the one I think that if it's not the only reason, it is one of the most compelling reasons. It's that Paul was afraid if he went to Ephesus, he would be tempted to never leave. That he was so in love with the people at Ephesus. And the people at Ephesus were so in love with him. And it was everything that, you know, he saw that was in the word of God, everything that he saw that, that, that Christ came to do, and he saw it all coming together and being expressed in the most complete, full way that he had experienced, and, and he, he just knew that if he went there, he knew that if he went there, it'd be tough. We're gonna read later on where, where he, he only meets with the elders, and that's hard talks about how it's this very tearful farewell. Can you imagine if he goes to Ephesus and it's not just the elders, but it's all the grandmas and the aunties and the kids? All the other people? And they all know that Paul very well could never come back and might be going to his death. And I love that Luke includes that because it kind of brings to life in Paul's life what Paul teaches and writes in his letters. And that if we're going to be his church, that his church is marked by a deep love for each other. Marked by a deep love for each other. I've talked about this already earlier to this, in, in this sermon and, and in other times. I'm not gonna go over it too much more, but I wanna make sure we get a couple of points. You know when I was listing the partial gospels a couple weeks ago, and I said, oh, here's all these partial gospels that are preached out there in churches, and they're attractive. One of them that I didn't, I didn't really include, and I don't have a cool name for it, so I'm just gonna describe it. But it's the partial gospel that says the church is optional. The church is optional. The church is a nice add-on if you need it. But that's not what we read in Scripture. Scripture tells us that when we become believers in Jesus Christ and that when we receive the Holy Spirit, we are united with all others who believe in Jesus Christ and have received the Holy Spirit, and that that is going to be expressed primarily in the local church. 
not optional. One of the pastors we had on the, on the mainland, he used to say, you know, people who say, oh, I love Jesus, but I can't stand the church. He would say, that's like somebody coming up to me and saying, Matt, I love you, but I hate your wife. Oh, I love Jesus, but I hate your bride. And yet, how many people do that? How many people think that all they need is this personal relationship with Christ and they don't need to be part of the community of faith? It's optional. Or it's for other people, other believers, but not me. If his church is marked by a deep love for each other, we should never, never cease, never cease to be amazed by his love and by his love for us in what he does for us and expresses to us, but also by his love in us. We should be amazed, amazed that you can love people that, that you know, drive you crazy. that disagree with you or are just disagreeable. We should be amazed when people love us and see in us value and worth and treat us in ways that we know we don't deserve. His church, it's marked by this deep love for each other you know, we try to make a point of saying goodbye to people. And Gene, next week we're going to say goodbye to you. And if that's an easy thing to do, if it's easy for me to say, see you, Gene. See you in the next life. Have we really been a church? It should be hard. It should be difficult. This church is marked by this deep love and it's this love that only comes from God. I just challenge you, pray, ask God to reveal, actively look for the power and the beauty of God's love in each other. And I'm gonna tell you, Pray even harder when that person is driving you nuts. Pray even harder when that person is just, just doing things that you just think are wrong. Build relationships. Don't just build friendships. Build relationships that enable us to lead to deeper expressions of God's love. Build relationships that, that long after someone's gone, that you can still demonstrate God's love for them. God at work in the routine of life can be wonderful and beautiful and powerful if we will allow him to constantly change us in such a way
that we are more in love with him and more in love with each other because of what he does through us.